there were three chairlifts on the hill that one of them famously had a catastrophic failure mid-season where one of the tower heads fell off and it was a real scar on the ski area and on the ski industry. And so we started really peeling back the layers and looking at foundations, going into the motor rooms, seeing if we could get them to run. Him and I hopped on a call with Chip Perfect and we essentially said, you bought a ski area with no chairlifts. None of these can be saved. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, West Virginia bound today on the Storm Skiing Podcast as we check in on one of the best ski area operators in the country. A quick reminder first, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. There you will find an article that accompanies this and every podcast that includes maps, photos, facts, and tons of additional context on the conversation. But there is so much more. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year, and you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on threads, on Twitter, or on Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Timberline, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while providing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience within the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 136, Tom Price, General Manager of Timberline, West Virginia. Who do you think is the best ski area operator in the country? Vail Resorts, Altera, Powdercore, Boyne, Mountain Capital Partners, Pacific Resorts Group? All have their strengths. All are doing some incredible things. But the perfect family who spent four decades building Southern Indiana's perfect north into one of the country's most important and improbable ski areas may be the very best ski area operators in America. If that sounds absurd, hear me out. If you want to know how difficult it is to run a ski area in Southern Indiana, 
Just look at how badly Vale has jacked up Paoli Peaks over the past two seasons. Barely opening the bump for two dozen days per winter. Perfect North, meanwhile, opened before Thanksgiving 2022 on a few marginal nights of snowmaking and stayed open for 88 total operating days. The ski area moves 10 to 15,000 customers on its peak winter days at a 100-acre ski area. For context, the comfortable carrying capacity for Copper Mountain, Colorado, which is 25 times as large as Perfect North, is just over 12,000 skiers per day, which is great, right? But would a model built on aggressive and continuous snowmaking translate to a larger mountain? In 2020, we found out when the Perfect family purchased Timberline, West Virginia, and instantly transformed it from one of the most rundown ski areas in the Mid-Atlantic to one of the region's most modern ski areas. They gutted the hill, installed a new high-speed sixer and a carpet-loaded fixed quad, supercharged the snowmaking system, and gut-renovated the lodge. The transformation was complete, dramatic, and impressive. I didn't get a chance to swing through Timberline and see it for myself until earlier this year. My expectations were, frankly, low. Not because I doubted the hype, but because I arrived on day five of a brutal week-long January thaw. Timberline was the seventh ski area I'd visited in three days, and most of the rest of them were sitting right around 30% open, if not less, defined by brown hillsides with thin cat tracks stringing the few patches of white together. So I was blown away when I got to Timberline. Top to bottom, wall to wall coverage. Almost every trail open very few thin spots, those beautiful new lifts spinning up the mountain. I was in total awe. And you will be too once you hear the full story of Timberline's comeback. Let's go. My guest today is the general manager of Timberline Mountain, West Virginia. Timberline features 1,000 vertical feet on 100 skiable acres, served by three lifts, including a high-speed six-pack. In 2019, the longtime operators of Perfect North Indiana purchased the shuttered Timberline and reopened it with all new lifts and a supercharged snowmaking system. Prior to joining the team at Timberline, he spent three years as general manager of Mad River, Ohio. He also worked at Perfect North, Cascade, Wisconsin, and Snowbird, Utah. Tom Price is my guest. Tom, welcome to the storm. I am so fired up for my first ever West Virginia podcast. How are things down in the mountains today? They're wonderful. I just got off the hill from getting the guys started for the day, and we have a full load of projects for the summer, and so we're taking advantage of the downtime, getting ready for winter because it's coming. What are they working on today, Tom? <laughs> snowmaking, snowmaking, snowmaking is okay. what we what we roll in today. We will finish a big electrical upgrade Lots and lots of wire going in the ground, and we're also starting putting new pipe in the ground today. You know, that's incredible because when I visited in January, I couldn't believe the power of the snowmaking system. I mean, not only were you deep after a long thaw, but there was a gun every, I don't know, it <laughs> yeah. seemed like 30 feet, and not a stick gun, a tower fan gun. I mean, you have some serious firepower already. How do you amp up that system? Yeah. So, you know, our roots are in the Midwest with perfect North slopes in Indiana. And so we have a bit of a philosophy on 
our gun spacing and power per acre. And so we, we have some lofty goals for getting our system, not quite to the power of our system in Indiana, but somewhere close. And so, yeah, we put them in pretty tight and we've been upgrading the pumping capacity and doing a lot of work to work on recapturing a bunch of water. And so we believe that snowmaking is really one of the keys to adding value to a ski area. Consistent product is one of the most important things we can provide. And that, those electrical upgrades, the pipe upgrades, is the goal at this point, is it just more capacity overall or more capacity all at once? So quicker startup is always one of our goals. When we got here, the snowmaking system was pretty antiquated and a lot of portable guns, a mixed match of, of guns. And so it took forever to get us up to pumping full capacity on our water. With us putting in a lot of these tower mounted guns and putting them mostly in permanent places, we can get out on the hill, get five or six guys out there and roll through and just get the hill on. And it's more about limiting your downtime and getting up to full capacity than it is, you know, snowmaking is a really complicated thing because there are some days that it, that it's more of a finesse thing, but really early season. And a lot of the time it's brute force and we're, we're out there making as much snow as we can. With perfect North, one of their sort of parlor tricks or party tricks is they can turn on almost all 200 of their guns at once from my understanding. And, and you'd know this a lot better than me. Where are you at as far as that sort of firepower goes at Timberline? And is your goal to reach that point where you can just flip that switch and the whole thing turns on? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the goal. That's the dream. It's a little harder here because of pumping capacity and the amount of water we can move from our, from our different water sources. We're currently, we can turn on probably 60 to 70% of our hill. And I think we'll be closer to 80% this year, but we don't have stationary guns on the entire mountain yet. And so there is a bit of resetting that goes around after each snowmaking. And that's really what is holding us back now from making snow a hundred percent across the hill but as you know with snowmaking it really it there's a ton of factors if it's 10 degrees and perfectly still and we and we're running guns wide open then we could probably only run about 50 percent of our hill but if we're on nuke bank and we're running across we can we can get pretty wide so two big differences between timberline and perfect north from my point of view one is that timberline is just a lot larger from an area total area and two is is I imagine that you have a little more altitude differential from the top to the bottom at Timberline than you do at Perfect North. What have the learning curves been like on each of those factors as you've applied all the expertise that the operators have from Perfect North to running a ski area in a much different climate? Yeah, it's been really interesting. The altitude here is one of our advantages. We're 42, 4,300 feet at the top. And we have a really interesting climate here in Canaan Valley. We get some of the same advantages that they get at Perfect North Slopes with the cold settling into the valley on a still night. And so we get really cold temperatures at the bottom, but we also get the advantage of the altitude and the cold temperatures at the top. The wind at the top is always a factor and the weather is more dynamic here. We get a lot more varying winds. So it's been a learning curve. Every mountain has a learning curve. I've luckily been at four. This is my fifth ski area. And so I've made snow at all of them. And each one is, is a unique animal. And that's part of the fun. And actually, every season is a unique animal. It's 
There hasn't been a season <laughs> of, our, of our three seasons here. There hasn't been one the same. <laughs> so it's a, it's a distinct mountain. What's your philosophy, Tom, on automation? Is that something you're jumping right into at Timberline? Or are you getting to know the mountain first and knowing when you can hit that switch? And when, like you said, you need guys out on the hill to make those micro adjustments? Yeah, we're... We don't work much with automation except for in our in our pump house, you know, that's all automated. But out on the hill we're manual and that's that's our roots from Perfect North Slopes. They're mostly manual as well. And we've found that it works really well for us with how we set up the hill. We had an automated system at Cascade that I used for a while and it was wonderful as well. And I could see us going that direction, absolutely. But really in the short term for bang for our buck, we put manual guns up and go out and do it ourselves. We just find that we get the best value out of that. So you have this great snowmaking system and this was your third season as operators of Timberline. And, and we can get into that backstory a little bit, but first I just wanna check in here, Tom. You know, I stopped in in January. It was a pretty brutal time throughout the mid-Atlantic. Timberline by far had the most impressive coverage. I skied 10 ski areas in four days in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and West Virginia. and I think that Timberline was the seventh ski area I arrived at, and I just was blown away by how good the coverage was. But overall, zooming out, how good or bad or average was the 2022 to 23 ski season at Timberline? We had a great season. You'll find that I'm an optimist about everything. Um, it was a, it was a really great opportunity for us to show off our snowmaking capabilities and our ability to have a good product every day. The weather did not cooperate. If it was cold, it was brutal, and the wind was going hard. Our snowmaking crew, it was one of the hardest snowmaking seasons I've ever been a part of, and they just, they left it all out on the field. It was it was a really, really special effort. So we had a great season. Our customers were happy. We had record numbers. We were really happy with the season. And that was all in spite of the fact that the weather just did not cooperate. And so we ended up really happy. It was a proof of product for us. The fact that the things that we've done over the last three years really do, really do matter and are going to help us in the future. I, I look at Timberline, Tom, as really indicative of the future of skiing. And we hear a lot about climate change and how difficult that's going to make it for the ski industry. But I think that what we discount when we discuss climate change is humans' ability to adapt. And I look at Perfect North and I look at Timberline and I see an industry that is very actively preparing for an unpredictable climate world. I, how much is this something that you talk about as a company this resiliency in the face of an unpredictable climate and being able to one up mother nature, even when things get very difficult. Yeah, it's really, it's been really interesting. It's been organic. Not only has the weather changed and the, the swings are more up and down and the seasons are more erratic, but the customer's expectations have changed. And really that may drive our decisions more than the changes in weather. You know, the, Back in the day, people on straight skis and old fixed grip lifts, and it was just a, a different expectation from the customer. The amount of vertical feet, the speed that they were skiing, it was a very different industry. And now people expect a very consistent product. They expect it to be wall to wall. They want really good grooming. They want really good beginner terrain. And so 
the changes we've made have, have factored a ton of things and climate is absolutely a factor, but it's probably not on the top of what's making our decisions. So it's interesting when you zoom out here, yes, it was a difficult season, but you opened on November 23rd. I mean, that is early. That's before Thanksgiving. How were you able to pull that off? And then when did you end up closing? Oh, I've got my summer brain on. I forget the exact date, but I want to say it was the second or and it's probably the third week of March. I try to tell people we're always shooting for Thanksgiving to St. Patrick's Day. And I think we'll hit that 90% of the time here. We're aggressive. We're also new in town. And so we're putting out a statement, you know, people can expect this will be a, a theme you hear out of me the whole time, but we want to set an expectation for our customer that the snow is consistent and that we're going to be open. And when they come, they don't really have to look at the weather. And so we work hard on being ready to make snow by the middle of October. And when mother nature gives us a shot, we're going to go out and we're going to make it happen. And with our grooming fleet and our snowmaking, we can put the hill together on a pretty short stint of cold weather. If we get 36, 48 hours, we're going to have a pretty good hill to ski on. And then late season, we can do the same. We can shove it around. We can make late season snow. And so we can really put out a pretty good product if Mother Nature gives us a small window. And it doesn't hurt when Mother Nature gives you some snow for free from the sky, which happens occasionally. And it's funny, when I was there in January, everyone left us telling me, oh, you should have been here two weeks ago. We were skiing in the trees. <laughs> it was epic. So so how, how was the snowfall this year? Did you get a couple of good dumps? Did you get anything? after January. I know you got a little bit in December. Yeah. Uh, I would describe it as a couple. Uh, <laughs> mm. From what I've heard from everybody, our first season, it snowed like crazy here. We, I think consistently it's going to be well over a hundred inches of natural snow this season. During the season, it was 36 inches and that's being generous. It snowed another 36 inches in May, which was just a kick in the face. But, uh, but yeah, the when it snows here, it's incredible. And the tree skiing here is some of my favorite tree skiing I've ever done. And I've been around. It really, this is a really wonderful mountain in a snowstorm. So I was going to ask you about that big dump in May. I mean, what happened there? And did you consider flipping a lift on? <laughs> we considered it. We had actually already started our maintenance on the lifts. And so it was going to be a pretty Herculean effort, not to mention the, the snow was not that good. <laughs> it was really right. wet and it probably not would not have been worth it. Did we think about it? Absolutely. We were happy for our neighbors over at Whitegrass. They got their skis out and everybody did some cross country skiing. And there were some tracks down uh, White Lightning, our main run. But it was it was something. It was not pleasant to be outside. I'll tell you that. It was a mm. really interesting storm. Another big thing that you did this year is brought night skiing. I'm not sure if it was back to Timberline or if you introduced it for the first time. So you can clarify that. But how was that first year of night skiing? Yeah, it was back to Timberline. The old lighting infrastructure was still on the hill. And we used a very small amount of it because it was not quite done to the standards that we would have liked. But we found it really successful. It really helped overcrowding and the compaction of people into a space is one of our bigger concerns. And it really helps spread out our crowds. It allowed people to come in a little later in the day and really enjoy the ski area through the evening and into the night. It gave people a chance to go back to the rental house and come back out in the evening. We found it really successful. It's something we're definitely going to grow. It's a great time for racing and terrain park events. 
we're very successful with it at Perfect North Slopes, and I, it's something we're definitely going to lean into here. When you say grow, Tom, do you mean grow the footprint or grow the number of hours and days per week that you do it or both? Uh, probably both. We're going to grow the footprint uh, a small amount this year. We're going to add one more trail is on the list, uh, the winter set trail that mm. kind of goes out and around. Going to the top of the hill is a little bit bigger bite. And I could see us going there in the future, but in the short term, we're really going to improve our offerings on the lower mountain and really dive into making that a great skiing experience. Do you think the local market is there to support that big of a night skiing footprint? I, I was actually pretty surprised. I believe I was there on a Thursday night or a Wednesday night, and it was pretty busy in spite of really, frankly, not great weather that I, I wouldn't have thought. It, it wasn't that whole snow in my backyard thing. I mean, there was your coverage was really good, but it would have been 65 degrees during the day. So it seemed like the local market was there to me, but I'm working on a very small sample size. From your point of view, could Davis support the full footprint of Timberline for night skiing? That's a complicated question. And yeah, and the, and the answer is yes. You know, a Wednesday night, the economics on it probably don't make sense. But a skier is an interesting thing. You know, the majority of the cost is getting it up and open keeping it open a couple more hours is pretty inexpensive. So when we're looking at it, it doesn't take a whole lot of, to make the economics on it work for some night skiing. It's absolutely makes sense on the weekends. I think we'll be able to grow some school clubs and through other events, racing, terrain parks, we're going to be able to build a, a more local audience for our night skiing here. There's a couple of towns that closer, you know, Davis is the closest town, but you get to Elkins, Buckhannon, some of these other bigger places around us. There's kids that would drive up here after school. And that's how I grew up skiing. I think it's really important. And so I'm excited to grow that. When you said that the night skiing as it existed wasn't up to your standards, did you mean from a safety point of view and sort of light coverage of the slopes, did you mean that it was a power hog and you need to upgrade to more modern stuff? Is it a combination of all those things? Kind of Talk us through what that meant and how you brought it up to your standards or hope to. Yeah, it was really the, once again, going back to the product, there was not enough lighting on the hill. I think it would have created some safety issues. It was inconsistent, different color lights. The lights weren't pointing in the right direction. It just wasn't quite, I come from Perfect North Slopes where it looks like a stadium. I mean, the lighting there is incredible and they do an enormous amount of visits in the evenings. And so we want to continue with what we did there here and really have that really great night skiing product where people don't feel like it's an afterthought. It should feel like a product in itself. Efficiency wise, we're absolutely leaning into more efficient lighting, but that wasn't our biggest concern from the start. So how do you even approach something like that? So you have the basic infrastructure there. It, would it have been easier if you didn't and, and you could just start from <laughs> scratch and not have to work with the old system? Did you gut the old system? Kind of talk us through how you approach a project like that when you have a sort of mediocre system in place, but it kind of is the thing you want, but it isn't. Yeah, you would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for some of those debates. Um, <laughs> it absolutely would have been easier to start from scratch if you have an endless amount of money. But the reality is, is reusing and leaning into existing pieces that are on the hill is the more economic thing to do. Also, it's it's really a little more environmental. You know, you're not putting up all new stuff, you're reusing. And so we did a combination of both. A portion of it is all brand new, new infrastructure going in. 
And then a portion of it is on old poles with new lighting infrastructure, new wire, things that we knew we could count on. It was a nuanced thing. The Mountain Ops team absolutely would have loved to just put in all new. And it was one of those projects we did in the harsh weather in the fall. And it was a, it was a ton of hard work, but it, it turned out really great. And so it was a combination. So it's a big project and you're bringing a lot of experience to this. You know, I mentioned all the different places you'd worked at in the intro, but I didn't put that in the context of you've been doing this for more than 20 years since the late nineties at perfect North. Did you grow up there in Indiana, Tom, take us into your youth. Did you grow up skiing? How did you come to this whole thing? Yeah. So I grew up 10 miles from perfect North slopes and really didn't know it existed until I was 13 years old. Nobody in my family skis. I played soccer at a really high level. And so soccer was my life, but my next door neighbor and best friend, his dad was a ski patroller. And one day they said, you want to go skiing with us? I said, yep. And I was hooked from the first day. I mean, I just couldn't stand it. I loved it so much. And so I couldn't afford it. So I went and got a job. And at 14 years old, I started working in the rental shop, cleaning boots and putting boots on people's feet and came up through, you know, serving pretzels and cleaning trays and lift attendant and worked my way just right up through. But that is one of the things that Perfect North Slopes has really, it's one of the things that makes it really special to me. And what, why I'm excited to be part of that company is because it is not only a great way to introduce people to the sport, but it's life-changing there. It's a great first job. It's a great business in the community. And I was just, I was a convert from the start. Take us back to that first day, Tom, when you're skiing with your neighbor, what ignited that fire? What kind of skier was your neighbor? Where'd they take you? Just take us through that first day. And <laughs> because the first day can go really bad and it can go really well. And sometimes, no matter which way that goes, you still love it. So take us into that deck. Yeah, I was the classic trying to keep up. There were really (laughs) incredible skiers, grew up skiing, and I was athletic. I put skis on, straight skis with leashes on. We went down the beginner trail, got on a lift, and no instruction at all. And I essentially fell down all day. I don't know why I loved it so much, but we skied every trail at Perfect North Slopes, except for one on my first day. And there was just something about the excitement of it. And it made you feel so alive. I just couldn't, I couldn't get enough. I remember sitting in the car on the way home, just telling them, this is it. This is all I'm going to (laughs) do. And it was all that you did. I mean, you started that first job at 14 and when you're 14, there's all kinds of different ways that your life can go, what kept you in skiing? And and I guess what kept you at Perfect North in particular? Yeah, there's a community there that is just really, really special. And I came up through at a special time. My best friends were Clyde Perfect's grandsons. And so I skied with them. We had a little bit of a, a special access to the place. <laughs> okay. um, and It was just so fun. Every day you could go there and you would know all your friends were there. You would meet new people. I couldn't imagine a better way to grow up. And then through that, through working there, I also built this whole other family of really, really close friends and people that I consider some of the most special people in my life. And so it was, (laughs) I've, I've tried a couple times to leave and I bounce back every time because it is just, (laughs) there's just nothing like it. It's just, it's a really special place. 
Talk about those times you left, where you went, and ultimately what drew you back. Yeah. So out of high school, I went to a technical school for industrial maintenance. My dad had worked in factories his whole life. And he, you know, he instilled in me that if you get this piece of paper, you could always get a job. And if you have that security, it'll allow you to be a little bit more free with your life. And so I followed that. I got my degree and then moved to Utah with, with a friend that I met through skiing. And we went out, no plan. I just started applying to jobs and Snowbird said, yep, you can come and make snow. I had obviously had experience making snow through perfect north slopes. I'd already started grooming. And so I was a pretty good catch for them. And I loved it. The skiing was unreal. Snowbird is still one of my favorite skiers in the world. And we had an unbelievably good ski season. I went out to be a ski bum and I didn't like being a bum. And so the work didn't scratch that itch for me of the ambitious side. And so I kind of saw that it was going to be all skiing and no career. And so I decided to come back and go to Perfect North Slopes and vacation well and work really hard. I mean, being a snowmaker at Snowbird, isn't that like being an ice cream salesman <laughs> at the North Pole? <laughs> That's right. Um, it was it was wild. I, re- I can still remember my first day they took us up in the tram and there's a little door on the bottom of the tram, at least the old tram cars that you could open up and you could hang your head out the bottom. Oh, wow. And there was, it was October and it was already, there was already feet and feet of snow up top. And I'm like, what are we doing? This is crazy. <laughs> but they had learned that they needed snow on their main trails, especially for transporting people around the ski area. The bottom of that ski area is very different than the top. And so they had learned really early that it could be really beneficial. And then Snowbird at that time as well was, they did a lot of things for ego. And so they had like, they had the highest snow gun in North America. They had this really crazy snowmaking system and that gun up there would just barely spit water out. But it was, man, that was a fun job. <laughs> it's a fun job. <laughs> yeah. The first time I got to Alta, I was like, oh, there's snow guns here at the bottom it was December. I just didn't expect that. And they were running and, and yeah, it made sense to me as I learned the ski area more and, and the difference between the bottom and the top. So you come back to Perfect North. And as I mentioned in the intro, you end up spending a few years at Mad River. And and for the listeners just to set this up, at the time, it was owned by Peak Resorts. And your time when you came back to Perfect North kind of aligned suspiciously with when Vale bought the place. I'll let you tell that story and what happened. But why did you leave to go to Mad River? And ultimately, what drew you back for the final time? To the perfect family yeah and even in between that i was in wisconsin chip chip did this really great project up in wisconsin with rob walls at cascade and that was really where i cut my teeth of really getting into the weeds of managing i was the mountain manager up there but but yeah uh, chip had been part of peak resorts in the very very early time and was really good friends with the boyds and so when they had an opening at mad river they called chip and said do you have anybody who's eager that would be a good GM, first time GM? And Chip came and talked to me. And this is one of the reasons that I love working for Chip and the perfect family is <laughs> there was no reason that he needed to come to me and give me this opportunity. I was a fairly key player at Perfect North Slopes and it created a little bit of hardship, but he knew it would be good for me. And so he told me to go up and interview. And so I did. And it was a great move for me. I learned a ton uh, it was, as you know, I got there 
and four weeks, five weeks into my tenure as GM at Mad River, the lodge burned to the ground yeah. in the middle of September. And so it really was trial by fire. I went through a really interesting project with the Boyds who were wonderful and did a great job of supporting me through that, but got to build temporary buildings, do a season in a, in a temporary lodge and then build a whole new lodge structure. It was really, it was scary, a school. <laughs> it really, it really shaped me. So you have a lot of experience then at this point at a lot of really busy, really intense, really short season Midwest ski areas. Then Vail buys Mad River and sort of around the same time, the perfect family buys Timberline. So just talk us through that whole period and how you ended up at Timberline. Yeah. So I'd been at Mad River for three years and I really enjoyed the work and I enjoyed the people up there, but I'd gotten married and my my wife and I, she was in the horse industry in Lexington, Kentucky, and I really didn't enjoy living at Mad River. And so we took an opportunity. I, I left and we started a business in Lexington, Kentucky. It was my only year of work that I was not in the ski industry. And during that time, yeah, Vale came through and bought peak, which was earth shattering for that company and a lot of the businesses in the East and in the Midwest. And so I was out of the mix, but on a trip to perfect North slopes, I stopped in and saw chip and Jonathan and the timing of it was just serendipity. I got a little word that there was a sale going on in West Virginia. And I was just talking to those guys. I said, you guys heard anything about this? And John Davis looks at me and says, I'm going down there tomorrow. We're going to make a bid. And so I instantly went over into Chip's office and I said, if you make something happen over there, I'm there. I'm on the team. He said, well, let's not get the cart before the horse. But <laughs> if something happens by some miracle, I'll give you a call. And then it happened. John made the purchase happen and Chip gave me a call. And before, this is not something I recommend, but before I even talked to my wife, I said, I'm there um, <laughs> because I couldn't pass it up. I, I saw, I know what perfect North slopes can do. I know I've been around chip long enough and have been through enough crazy work projects with him that I knew I couldn't pass it up. And so I was on board from the start. Chip perfect. Obviously one of the best ski area operators in the country. Things don't always translate, right? So if you're successful one place, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll be successful at another place. So you'd been around them for two decades at that point in one capacity or another. What gave you confidence that what worked in Southern Indiana would translate to the mountains of West Virginia? What made you believe that they could make it happen? I, it's just ego. No, um, <laughs> I'd been around Chip long enough and I'd been, and I'd seen what he had done he was actually, when he was with Peak, he was involved with Mad River. What we did at Cascade was very similar to what we did here. A little bit, some infrastructure changes, but um, really a, a change of ticketing philosophy and that kind of thing. And then it's just the team at Perfect North Slopes is what builds all the confidence. It is so strong. And the knowledge base there and the youth and the energy and the responsible business ownership as long as the purchase was right, as long as there was enough meat on the bone here, I didn't see any way that we were going to fail. <laughs> that was before we got here and <laughs> COVID happened. Plus the place was a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> was a little bit more beat up than I expected, but there's something about 
working with Chip and the perfect family that just builds an enormous amount of confidence because I don't think Chip knows how to fail, actually. It just You just work until it works. So let's set this up for the listeners here, Tom. Timberline is actually not that old, right? For a ski area that we're talking about was pretty run down when you got it, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's only 40 years old. It opened in 1983, which is when you saw a lot of ski area development in Pennsylvania and the Mid-Atlantic, just because that was sort of an inflection point when snowmaking got really good. But what can you tell us about the history of Timberline Mountain and ultimately why the ski area closed down around 2019 or 2018? Yeah, so a guy by the name of David Downs started this ski area. Uh, He put in a, I believe it was a handle toe to about Mid-Mountain, really about in the same line as our Mid-Mountain lift is now. And he was a developer. He was building houses down here in the valley. He knew that that this valley was a special place with the the two state parks and all the forest service land and protected lands. He knew that it was going to be a destination that people wanted to spend time. And I think he had a skiing background. He had a passion for it. And so he started the ski area as a little bit of an amenity to the real estate, but also just out of a passion. But during his development, I think he had to make a choice uh, to sell the ski area in order to continue with the development and he found a family the Reichels Doc Reichel he was I believe a cardiologist that was very successful in the Philadelphia area and he bought it and I don't know why he bought it I think he bought it because he wanted a ski area to operate and he was from what I know he was a very hospitable person he loved spending time in the in the lodge cleaning taking care of customers but no real ski area background no real ski area experience and so I think that is ultimately what did the ski area in is that the ski industry is a very complex thing and it is dynamic and erratic and takes an enormous amount of work and patience and focus. And if you're also a cardiologist or you have other things going on, a lot of times you can't do it. And so it just got out ahead of them and eventually went into bankruptcy. So asking this question really on behalf of local Timberline skiers, and there was a time, and I think you've collected back a lot of goodwill from the chairlift conversations I had when I was skiing there, but there was a time when locals and regional skiers were pretty down on Timberline and (laughs) pretty down on the owners. So why is this time different? Is it just as simple as now you have, you know, what you just said, basically now you have people who actually understand the ski industry running it? Is there something more nuanced here? Why is this time going to be different for Timberline Mountain? Yeah, I think it's the the previous ownership had a love-hate relationship with the local community. And when things got really hard here, they did not handle it well. And so, and the community knows how special the ski area is. It's a really great place. And so as it was declining, they obviously got distressed and did not like how the the family was handling it. And so they turned on them. I mean, when I got here, every stop sign in the town had a sell T-line sticker on it. Uh, (laughs) There was a a whole website full of people with just full of hate. And so we came in and we looked like the greatest thing in the world because we're a responsible business. We worked really hard and we made these dramatic changes that brought the ski area back. What makes this time different is the same things that work in Indiana are the same things that work anywhere is if you're a responsible business owner, 
a big part of that is being a part of your community and using the power of running a good business to help everyone around you. And that's a big part of what Perfect North Slopes does. You interviewed Jonathan Davis. You you know how wonderful of a man he is. Um, and that spirit comes through through here as well, because it's really important to us that we're not only a profitable business, but that we're contributing back to the area. You know, I want to dig into something you just said a little more. And, and that's this passion of the local skiers. I think there's a very dismissive attitude nationally for mid-Atlantic skiing. And, and I say this as someone who grew up in the Midwest, a Midwest guy like you, I grew up in Michigan. <laughs> and I know how skiers from the West, because I see this in my emails, they don't want to hear anything about, they don't even want to hear anything about New England, let alone the Midwest. And I get a lot of sort of very dismissive emails when I cover the Midwest. And it's like, well, too bad, I'm going to. But I'm also going to cover the Mid-Atlantic, and I feel like the lack of respect the Midwest gets, it's even amplified in the Southeast and the Mid-Atlantic, where this is really an area that, you know, self-styled, quote-unquote, serious skiers right off, which I think is is ignorant. However, I want you to set this up for us. Tell us about, from your experience, now having been there for a few years, tell us about West Virginia ski culture, the passion of local skiers, and what it's like to operate a hill down there for them. Yeah, it's been really, really fun to get to know everybody. And as I get deeper into the West Virginia skiing community, it has a lot of depth to it. There's a lot of history of skiing here. It's outdoors people. People who migrate to West Virginia or who are born here and raised here love the outdoors. They spend time in nature. They love winter. They love summer. They love they love using this unbelievably beautiful land that we have to fulfill parts of their life. And in that is a ton of passion. And they're also excellent skiers. There's a competitive nature to it as well. They spend a lot of time on the snow. There's a lot of people that ski every day. There's a lot of people that will um, <laughs> go into the back countries of, of West Virginia and go skiing. And so skiers all over the country are passionate and whichever region they grow that passion in is the part that they're going to feel that draw to. And it's the same here. If you grow up skiing in West Virginia, you're going to love it because it's the place that you did it. I'm an Indiana guy. I love skiing in Indiana and everywhere I've ever gone in the ski industry, people go, you can ski in Indiana. It's the <laughs> same thing. It's the same thing here. And it's less, it really has less to do with the hill. It has more to do with the passion on what makes us skier. To me. So you show up in West Virginia, you have a really passionate culture that's really waiting for this hill to be revived. You have a great ski hill. I mean, great natural fall lines, but the place, let's be honest, it was a wreck. So set this up for us here, Tom. What did Timberline look like when you took the keys and showed up in 2019? Man, it was a mess. Um, <laughs> it was a real mess. So me and a partner of mine, uh, a guy who's been in the ski industry forever at Perfect North Slopes, Dan Neff, everybody knows him as Booney. Him and I came down here on essentially a fact-finding mission. We started really peeling back the layers. And the first thing we needed to do was peel back the layers on the, on the lifts. There were three chairlifts on the hill that one of them famously had a catastrophic failure mid-season where one of the tower heads fell off and it was a real scar on the ski area and on the ski industry. And so we, we started really peeling back the layers and looking at foundations, going into the motor rooms, seeing if we could get them to run, which was an adventure in itself. And after 
it really was a day and a half, two days. Him and I hopped on a call with Chip Perfect and we essentially said, you bought a ski area with no chairlifts. None of these can be saved. And that changed the game really quickly because the plan was to come in, really put a shine on the existing infrastructure, probably retrofit one or two of the lifts. We knew we needed to build confidence in the lifts, but we really didn't want to build brand new lifts. But instantly it became a bigger thing. During this whole piece, COVID is happening, is coming, is becoming a reality. Jonathan and Chris Walsh are building relationships with West Virginia Economic Development Authority. And so through all that, we really came around to let's tear the lift infrastructure down. Let's put in two new lifts, uh, detached to the top and a fixed grip to mid-mountain. And that changed what I think the original plan was maybe three or four million dollar project turned into a sixteen million dollar project really quickly. Oh my gosh. And so yeah, that's what we did. How we ended up with a six person lift, it really just morphed as we started really crunching the numbers and thinking about uphill capacity and what we could grow. Economically it made more sense to put in one beast of a lift to move people to the top. When we originally ordered it, we ordered it with less chairs. But as the season approached and we saw how season pass sales were going, it was like, oh, we're going to need capacity. We're going to put all the chairs on. So we, we called Doppelmeyer and said, send more of them. <laughs> it's, we were making decisions daily that were big and impactful. That first year was, I really wish we would have done a better job of cataloging it because it was an adventure like no other. It was unreal. <laughs> so let's focus on those lists for a moment and how you wound up with the configuration you have, which I'll include all these trail maps, the old and the new on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. But just for the listeners, so the old configuration of Timberline Mountain is you had essentially two bottom to almost top triple chairs, a lift called Thunderstruck, which ran from the bottom of Pearly Glades to the summit. And you had another triple called Silver Queen that ran from near the base lodge up to Flag Spruce. And then you had a little double chair at the bottom that just went up a couple hundred vertical feet, maybe. Talk about your decision to, instead of going back to two lifts that ran top to bottom, to just do one top to bottom lift, and then to do a quad that went to mid-mountain. How did you end up with that configuration? Yeah, so the Silver Queen lift that went almost from the bottom to almost to the top, it was a poor layout. You want skiers to be able to use your entire mountain. The more efficient thing to do is to have the majority of your trails accessible by your lifts. And that lift really was kind of sitting out on its own. And so that one was obvious that it didn't need replaced. We couldn't put something back in there. It was notoriously long and slow, as well as the Thunderstruck lift, the triple that we took down that did go from the bottom to the top. It was notoriously slow and everybody talked about it. And so when we started really crunching the numbers on lifts, it became obvious that we could have the same impact of two fixed grip triples or whatever with one big six pack. And so that just made the most sense for us to go from the bottom to the top. It also is a really efficient way of using your base area. The ski area has really well cut out trails, but the base area is crunched. It's really tight. And so we needed to do the most that we could with the base area space that we had. And so that was going to a single lift from top to bottom. I mean, deciding to go from fixing up a few old lifts to buying a 
brand new six pack. I mean, that's a big jump in investment. Did you, was there a moment where you looked at maybe just buying a couple used quads, fixed quads from a ski area, taking them out and, and upgrading to a high speed? Did you consider that? And ultimately, why did you decide to make this huge investment in the six pack? We considered everything, but fairly quickly, Chip, rightfully so, knew that we needed to do something that was going to instill confidence in the existing clientele, the existing customers, that the lift infrastructure was going to be safe and reliable, because that was all we heard about when we got here, was the old lift infrastructure and how everybody was scared every time they got on it and how miserable the ride was and how many stops there were. And so... We really needed to make an impact with the lifts. We knew we were going to make an impact with the snowmaking, but the lifts, we knew that it needed to be done right. And it just, as we looked at it, as we worked with West Virginia on some of the, the economic incentives, it just made sense to, to go ahead and step up to the six pack. And it was absolutely the right decision. It's, it's been wonderful. So on the other lift, you went with a fixed grip quad with a loading carpet. Curious if you considered a high-speed lift for that line? We really didn't. That lift is very similar to the lift infrastructure at Perfect North Slopes. It's about the same vertical feet. It's about the same speeds. And we knew what it was going to be accessing. The intent of it wasn't necessarily for it to be a solely beginner lift. If it was going to be solely for beginners, we may have thought about a detach for that loading and unloading experience, but we knew it was going to be one of the bigger pieces for our night skiing, and it is the lift for night skiing, and it just works really well for that. It's a more, <laughs> it gives you more social time. One of the problems with our detach, one of the things, you know, people have a hard time finding something to complain about sometimes, and one of the things they complain about is they don't have enough time to talk because it's so quick <laughs> to the top, and so... The fixed grip allows people to talk a little longer. Yeah, that Summit Sixer is a really fast lift. You know, I maybe I just caught this at a funny time, but that adding the, the loading carpet onto that fixed quad really does allow it to move pretty fast, which means that the unload is really fast. And boy, I felt like I was watching a Warren Miller film at the top. There were <laughs> skiers just falling all over the place. I, I mean, do you ever have to slow that thing down? Is there is there a moment where you thought, ooh, maybe we should have done a detach just so they could unload a little better? Because as, as much as there's passion in West Virginia, there are a lot of beginners, disproportionate amount compared to maybe some other regions of the country. And they were having a tough time with that lift. Yeah, and it's actually one of the things we've been working on this spring. We've, we've made adjustments to the unload up there that is going to make it a lot better. We learned some things with that lift that... <laughs> yes, it would have been nice for it to be a detach, but once again, would the extra three or four million dollars that that would have cost be better in snowmaking? Absolutely. And so we had to make that decision as well. We're improving that own unload experience and we, we have slowed it down a little bit at the end of last season. And I think we're going to have it dialed in. We're moving some dirt. We're doing some things that are going to make that much better. I don't know why the top of that lift turned out as advanced as it did, but it's one of our main <laughs> concentrations, especially now that all the night skiing goes up it, it gets a lot of traffic. And so it's really important to us that unload experience gets better. What can you tell us about how you're going to improve that experience, Tom? Yeah. So we extended the, the unload deck. One of the problems was when you got up there, you didn't have enough time to stand up before you started on the downslope. 
And so we just rebuilt that. We made more space for you to stand up. We also adjusted the height a little bit. We think the height was a little bit tight. We needed to raise the chair height just a teeny bit. And then we're regrading the dirt to make it a more gentle slope out from there. And then we're also working with fencing and that kind of thing to create a better space for people to get away. And then also we're going to run it just a little bit slower. I think with all those things, it's going to get pretty dialed. It's going to be very similar to some of the lifts at Perfect North Slopes and nothing gets more volume than those. So we'll just keep working to get them <laughs> like that one. Another interesting change that you made was moving the beginner area from what had been kind of far lookers right over toward the old triple and then right out of the lodge. You moved it to right out of the lodge and you put in, you started with one carpet. Now you have two carpets. Talk about the decision to move the beginner area and how that's worked out so far. Yeah, it's worked great. It's another one of the struggles with the ski area is having enough base area. And where that old beginner lift was, access some some wonderful beginner terrain that put people right out in the main thoroughfare of the ski area. And it was a ton of cross traffic, high speed cross traffic. And so we really didn't think that was a viable space for beginner terrain, especially at the start. And Perfect North Slopes adopted conveyor lifts really early on. And we know how valuable they can be to the skiing public, especially beginners. And so we put one in the first year, and now we have two conveyor lifts in our beginner area. And that area just keeps expanding. We are going to end up running out of space and we're going to have to think creatively about where that next step is for beginners, but it's great teaching terrain over there. It's just really nice pitch and it's right outside the rental shop. You don't have to slog, slog your skis across the snow. You can just get right in there. You know, Perfect North has five, I believe, conveyors. As you look to build out this beginner network. Are you looking to Perfect North as a model? And, and I'm also curious, I wrote a story last week about Bel Air in New York and they have a gondola and they're actually going to put a beginner area up at the top of their mountain where they have some really nice gentle terrain. It seems to me, and I don't know if your six pack is configured for downloading, but is it, is that something you've considered as maybe throwing a beginner area at the top of the mountain? <laughs> We've absolutely thought about it. Not so much about downloading, Really, we have the Salamander Trail, which is a two mile long beginner trail that really was one of the deciding factors on why we pursued this ski area. And the quicker we can get people onto that Salamander Trail, the better, because it's the experience. It's what every person dreams of. It's two miles of scenic terrain that's gentle and forgiving. And so one of the things we're really concentrating on is, yes, get people into the beginner area, especially first timers. But how do we transfer them out of there quickly in a way that they're also comfortable with and are reasonably safe? And so we get a lot of beginners to the top of the hill, especially on their first day. And I think we'll keep leaning into that because we do have such easy terrain coming off the top. As long as they don't make a wrong turn down off the wall. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> we'll make it obvious that where they're supposed to go. <laughs> All right. So you're a big parks guy, Tom. We've talked about some really cool plans that you have to build out the terrain parks there. Talk a little bit about those, what that terrain park scene is like at Timberline currently and how you hope to build that out over time. Yeah. Terrain parks were a big part of really my success in the ski industry. Right when I was getting into, I started working lift maintenance at Perfect North Slopes, but it was 
really my way into the train parks. Me and my friends built the first train parks at Perfect North Slopes. I sat in the cat and would tell them what we were looking for and they'd push up snow. We'd go out and experiment. And eventually I ended up driving the cat and building the parks and organizing it from the ground up. And so it's a big part of my passion. The Midwest is a perfect spot for parks. It's one of the reasons Perfect North Slopes has such a great park scene. And we want to lean into that here because it's a linchpin in the ski industry. It may not be the reason that every person starts skiing, but kids these days, that's their vision of it is jumps and rails and half pipes. And when they get to the ski area, that has to be a part of it. And so, yeah, we're leaning into it here. It's once again, one of those things where you need a passionate person to go out and do the work and really put the time in. And so those people are bubbling at the top and I'm trying to cultivate some, not only people to ski the parks, but people to work in them and build them here. And so it'll take a few years to really get it popping, but we're planning on putting in a rope tow so that people can come and spend tons of laps in our park. I'll continue to spend time in the cat out there building and designing and we're working with our ski school to do tons of lessons. And once you get all those pieces working together, the culture will just build. So on your current trail map, you have two terrain parks marked, one called Snow Squall and one called Thunder Snow that run parallel to each other. Where do you imagine this rope tow going? And when could we see that? It is still a whiteboard uh, idea. We're fairly committed to actually getting the rope tow in and installing it sometime this fall. Where it goes is still up for debate. We have two good options. One is in on the edge of the bigger park, the Snow Squall Park. They used to have an old half pipe thing in that park and it has this really great edge and we could put it over there and people could make laps in the bigger park on smaller features. Or we could put it in the old beginner terrain where our intermediate or intro park is and people could spin laps in there as well. And that could also be a secondary beginner terrain if we needed it. So we're in debates. Who knows? Maybe we'll buy two rope toes. Where <laughs> Knowing us, that's probably what we'll do. So I, you know, I spent a lot of time skiing in Minnesota and Wisconsin this past winter, and I was really impressed with these high speed rope toes. And mm-hmm. Rick Schmitz, who owns several small skiers in Wisconsin, told me that these things can move 4,000 skiers per hour. So for context for your listeners, that high-speed six-pack probably moves somewhere around 3,200 skiers per hour. Is this something you've considered, these high-speed rope toes? Yeah, whatever rope toe we put in, it will probably move pretty quickly. You have to design your terrain around it because nobody likes to grab onto one of those rope toes sitting still. You almost have to be moving when you grab them, but... Yeah, I mean, Perfect North Slopes, their rope toes move pretty quick, and it's one of the reasons they're just pumping out unbelievably good skiers out of Perfect North Slopes. It's like a little Olympics factory. It's because of those rope toes and shorter lifts. It's the way that you can make a ton of laps on the same terrain. It's just a practice machine, and yeah, that's what we're going to lean into is creating spaces where a person can go in and just spend all day (laughs) learning how to do that next trick. That was what hooked me into the sport. I think it's really important. You know, those are the kids that are out there in the rain. That's what we're looking for. So long-term, do you see the terrain parks staying sequestered to that area? Do you think you could eventually have maybe a top to bottom terrain park? How are you looking to grow this over time? 
Uh, that's an interesting question because terrain parks are evolving as well. Every year, the theme or the, the new concentration is changing. And so we'll move with the industry and with what the customer is looking for. I see a lot of ski areas move into some of those more natural parks again, things that are mixed in with a regular terrain. I could see a couple opportunities for us to do that here. We don't have any plans for that in the short term, but we have a lot of terrain that we could start playing with as long as it mixes in with our general public. Well, it's the same as anything that's a little bit auxiliary, same as racing, same as any of that other stuff. You have to really think about how it's going to affect your Saturday day versus your Thursday night. All right, Tom, let's talk about the trail footprint more broadly. The old trail count of the old Timberline or the previous owners was 37. The current total is 20 and trail inflation is real and there's upper this and lower that. And But there was some real consolidation that took place from the old trail map to the new where entire trails disappeared. So there, the old Silver Queen Triple, for example, ran up a trail called Silver Streak, which was parallel to White Lightning. That trail is now gone from the map. Don't know if you just widened White Lightning. Another trail was called Thunder Draft. That was between White Lightning and Thunderstruck. So take us through the trail network as a whole and tell us how you reconfigured it and how we went from 37 trails down to 20, even though substantively it looks like you're skiing on the same footprint. Yeah, tra trail inflation is a nice way of saying lying. Um, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, ski, ski areas have to communicate two things. One, when they're advertising, they're trying to make their ski area look as big and as impressive as possible. And when you're in a competitive market, trail inflation is a thing that happens. But what we found is when the ski area doesn't end up skiing, like the trail map looks, people end up disappointed and they're wondering what's going on. And so we design our trail maps functionally. We want to be able to communicate well with our customers, what trails are open, what snow coverage is. We don't use it as an advertising piece. It's really a function piece. And so we went through and painstakingly renamed and looked at the map and tried to decide what is our ski area 90% of the time and then made those trails together. When it snows here, there's way more than 37 trails. There's a hundred trails on this mountain when it snows because there's so many little offshoots and fun things. And those are fun for people to learn. When I was at Snowbird, there was a trail map that sat in the patrol building that had, I forget how many trails on it. It was like 400 because it was, those were the places they needed to be able to name where people were. And it was, it was, it was a really interesting thing, but we really look at our trail map as a communication tool and as a functional thing. And so we try not to get into the uppers and lowers and unless they're necessary, we want people to know what trail they're on. We want people to know what's open. And so it's a function piece. So what did happen to those trails that I mentioned, Thunderbolt and Silver Streak? I mean, were they in fact not real trails? D did you cut the trees down between them? Just take us through that. So the trees, the Silver Streak Trail used to be a real trail, and it wasn't when we got here. Those trees have been cut down a long time ago. There's a lot of old trail maps floating around from Timberline, and the most updated ones from the previous ownership aren't necessarily online. It was a pretty chaotic time around here. So that, that trail, yes, um, Silver Streak and White Lightning turned into one trail, and it's huge. It's wide. It's sometimes 20 passes wide with a snowcat. And the other ones were more lift lines. We try to name trails 
This is an interesting dilemma for us and we're still working our way through it, but we're used to naming trails that have snowmaking on them. In Indiana, those are the ski trails. Any trail that has snowmaking is a ski trail. Here, people name trails that don't have snowmaking on them and they might, in a season like this year, only be open 10 days at the most. And so we want people to know that when we say we're 100% open, we're 100% open and we're not going to name every lift line that's skiable, every little offshoot in the glades, those trails exist and they're probably open quite a bit of the season, but they're really extra. And so we just took those trails off. So there are two named glades on the trail map, Glade Runner between Lower Thunderstruck and Whiteout and Pearly Glades, which runs parallel to the quad chair. Given the unpredictable nature of the snow, is there any intent or thought around actively thinning or naming more glades, or it sounds like you can ski those areas when they're open, but you're not necessarily going to bother with the maintenance or naming of them, or those two different things, maintaining them and naming them. They are two different things. And yes, we are. Our trails last season were quite a bit wider than they were the year before. We did a lot of tree clearing and brush clearing that really created a lot of access into the glades. We do plan on getting into the glades and doing some trail maintenance in the future. It hasn't hit the top of our whiteboard yet because we're still worried about putting pipe in the ground. And really, our, our glade skiing's pretty clear as it is. The grow season up here is so short because of our altitude. If we get 10, 15 inches of snow, you're, you're skiing everywhere. We definitely plan on leaning into the glades, and it is a learning process for us because we do not have glade skiing necessarily like this in, in Indiana. We have some glade skiing that we've created ourselves that's more man-made, but we're going to lean into it. So going back to some of these really old trail maps, I'm looking at one from 1994 right now. There was a trail while Glade skiers right of off the wall called Cherry Bowl Glades. So looking at that, for instance, is that a trail we could see resurrected? Are there other areas on the mountain that you've identified as potential to thin out glades in the way that Pearly Glades and Glade Runner thinned out? So you've named the one glade trail that we really can't do a whole lot of maintenance in. That part is part of the Forest Service land. We have a small section of our ski area that's on Forest Service land. And that, that terrain is always going to stay natural. That's some of the best glade skiing on the entire mountain. And it's really clear in there. It's a big, big area. It's probably 40 acres of skiing and it faces the right direction. And it's one of the spots everybody goes on a snow day. The other places that we're probably going to get into maintaining are more the ones on the side of Thunder Thunderstruck and the right side of White Lightning. Those areas are areas that the snowmaking can drift into that we could probably have open even more. And we'll, we'll lean into those areas first. So looking at the terrain footprint as a whole, Tom, I'm not sure how much land you own. Is there potential long-term to either expand Timberline in a new direction with a whole new trail pod or to build additional trails within your current footprint and your current boundaries? We have both. Um, we do own, I think it's close to 200 acres that are undeveloped. They don't face the right direction. And that space is probably used better for other things, maybe some off-season type of things, think mountain biking or whatever. But there is absolutely potential for more skiing terrain over there. And I could see us developing some stuff over there. We really, really want to concentrate on some more beginner terrain here. There's also opportunity within our existing terrain to do the same thing. That additional 200 acres, where is that in relation to the current trail map? 
Uh, looker's right. So when you're driving into the ski area, you're coming in Timberline Road, and you're looking at the ski area from the front, it's on the right side. It's past Twister, that side of the mountain. Would that actually, is there any potential there? Because I believe this side white grass is on, correct me if I'm wrong, but could you actually potentially ski down to white grass? So there's one peak in between. There is a way, there are people that will ski Canaan Valley, Whitegrass, and Timberline in one day on cross-country skis. There's trails that connect across the top of the mountain ridge. Downhill-wise, you couldn't get there. You're going to end up at a road. What's the vertical drop in that section over there? It would be a thousand feet as well. Maybe just a little more now that you're making me think about it. It may just be a teeny bit more to that area. And would you access that? off the six pack or would you need a whole new access point? We really haven't thought that hard about it because we've been so concentrated on this side. I think there is potential to, you could really, you could ski off a twister and go into that terrain sometime in the future. There's some interesting borders up there with forest service and fish and wildlife. And so it's not the most straightforward path down into there, into that area, but you could access all of it off a twister. So it sounds like something that you're aware of, you've thought about, but it's not a priority. I mean, what would it take for us to see an expansion at Timberline? Do you really have to get the rest of the business ironed out and, and see the volume and need some sort of relief valve? Is there something else? Do you have any sort of timeline in this? No timeline. It really is pretty far to the back burner when we're thinking about which direction we're headed. We're thinking more about developing our current space that we're skiing on. And if not for all the other reasons, it's because it faces the right direction. Most of that stuff we're talking about over there faces to the west. And being in the south, you really, really do have to think about the direction that you're facing. And so we're going to concentrate on the front side of the mountain and the existing terrain. There's an enormous amount of potential on this side still. And hopefully we keep growing and we have to really start thinking about that other side sometime in the future. But I don't know when that'll be. So what can you tell us about the potential on the existing side, Tom? Is there, are you talking about potentially new trails? Where would those be? Or, or is it something else? Yeah, we talk about new trails, especially off the mid-mountain lift. We really would like to see a better beginner trail off of the mid-mountain lift. And so it's something we talk about pretty regularly. There's also potential that we'd put another lift to the top as we grow. It's funny, our lift lines look long, but our longest lift line this year was, was like 16 minutes. But we do have to start thinking about the future and there are going to be more and more people coming. And so we have to start thinking about how we increase capacity to the top. What have you thought about there? I mean, it, it seems like a, a second six pack would be overkill. You're talking about a relief fixed quad. Are you thinking something that doesn't quite, maybe it goes to where that old lift dropped off at Flag Spruce. What do you have in mind over there? Once again, this is still all whiteboard discussions, but I think it'll go to the top. And if it's a fixed grip or a detachable is still debated um, on one side of it and almost everybody else is on the other side. But uh <laughs> I, I love detachables. I think the unload experience is really important, but it could be a fixed grip to the top as well. And that would be a really great thing. Once again, we have, it's funny. One of the things we hear constantly here is that they love all the things we did, but the six pack makes them so tired so fast because they get so many laps that their day feels short. And so it might be nice to have something that allows people to rest a little more. Right. Could we actually see a second six pack at Timberline? I think that's a long shot. But I've also been surprised by us a lot of times. So so let's talk about the lodge, Tom. The lodge is just amazing. I actually 
thought that you had built that new because it was so nice, but apparently that was a reno. So talk about the lodge and what you did to fix that thing up. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that because man, that was an enormous amount of work. The lodge had been, it had these big old fireplaces on in it that had not been cleaned in years. There's when Booney and I got here, there was fry grease on the floor. The place was just as bad as you could absolutely imagine a lodge being. It was, it was that, but it had good bones and a lot of history and it has this iconic look to it. And so we really decided to just lean into it and do the best that we could with elbow grease. And so we went in there and we stripped it back all new electric, all new plumbing, paint, scrubbing floors, new floors, and then also did a close to 6,000 foot expansion on it. And that, that expansion is right in the middle of the lodge. So when you walk in, it has that new feel, there's new drywall, there's new wood showing, but it, it molds right into the old infrastructure and has been great. I think we're going to need to do it again because it gets pretty busy on our busy days. And so I could see us doing an expansion here again in the future. So let's put all this together, Tom. Brand new lifts, a whole refurbished snowmaking plant, a new feeling lodge, just tons of investment overall. How much money did the Perfect Family put into Timberline? And I mean, what does this commitment say about their overall philosophy on how to run a ski area? Yeah, it's it's really exciting for us, especially as the employees. The total commitment at this point is is passing twenty million, but it's they know the potential. They they started a ski area on their family farm in southeastern Indiana, and they know what can happen with a continued investment into the product and a real attention to the business. Chip and his leadership of the family, they don't ever take their eyes off of it. They're always concentrated on it and they're always reinvesting into not only the infrastructure, but into the people and they know what that can do. And so it's been a great investment so far. We expect really great things from the ski area and I I know that they've been happy with it. So how has community support been, Tom? And, And I'm curious, so there's sort of two elements to this. One is you have to win the locals back and arguably just as important is you have to win those destination visitors back. And for those listening, Timberline is absolutely a destination ski area for folks from the DC area or from Pittsburgh and and from a lot of these metros along the East coast. So how have each of those groups responded? Have you seen good support? Yeah, we've seen great support. The local community has been wonderful. They all came to us with open arms and we're ready to help. And it's been just a really great relationship, not only with the other businesses around, but just the entire community. And then with the destination public, I think we're still a little bit unknown. I think that we like to grow organically. We're really grassroots. And so as people come and have that great experience here, it's growing. Our name is growing. And so we're trying to stay ahead of the fact that we're a little bit unknown in those big metro areas of D.C., Baltimore, Pittsburgh. And then we're seeing a lot from, of course, Cincinnati, Columbus and the and the cities from the south that Perfect North Slopes has such a big impact in. And so, yeah, we're I think our potential in this region is huge. So most of the southeast ski areas are really resorts with a ski area added on, right? It's not, it's a short season. The skiing is not necessarily the main thing. And I'm talking about places like Wintergreen or Snowshoe or Seven Springs, where there's just a lot to do. 
because you can't always necessarily rely on the skiing and, and it's a it's a four seasons thing. What is the potential for Timberline to grow into a true southeast style resort of the sort that you see at Wintergreen or Massanutten or Snowshoe? Yeah, it's another one of those things that we're constantly thinking about because we're still in construction phase here. Our main concentration is winter. There's a lot of potential left in the winter and we don't want to take our eyes off of that, even though there's enormous potential in the off season as well. So we're leaning into events. We have a, a fall event schedule that we'll be announcing here soon, and those have been successful for us. But when we really think about where we're allocating capital and other resources, we're going to concentrate on winter, at least in the short term. And then I would absolutely expect us to concentrate in the other seasons once we get the winter product where we want it. It's interesting that you mentioned the destination guests starting to roll in from the Midwest. I would imagine that's because of Timberline's connection to the Midwest and the perfect family. You know, it's probably not traditionally been a Midwest destination just because of of the distance. Maybe folks weren't thinking about it, but, you know, being from the Midwest, I know an eight hour drive to a Midwesterner is nothing. Whereas in the East Coast, they sort of put a limit on four or five hours. You introduced this really interesting combo pass with Perfect North, the perfect pass this year. Why did you finally introduce this product going in here year four? Yeah. In the first couple of years, we did it just a discounted based. If you had a perfect season pass, you would get 50% off of your visit to Timberline. And we wanted to get a feel for how many people were going to take us up on that and how much of an amenity Timberline could be to Perfect North Slopes or vice versa. And this year, now that Perfect North Slopes is going into RFID technology and we're doing a big technology upgrade through both ski areas, our tickets are going to be able to intertwine much more easily. And so it was really the the final linchpin that made it happen was the technology changes all being headed up by Jonathan Davis. So now our systems are going to be completely intertwined. Everybody's guest information will be easily transferred back and forth. And so it just makes it much more seamless. So there is still a Timberline Locals Pass. I imagine the perfect pass is more of a draw for the Indiana crowd who are looking for that destination than the local Timberline crowd who are probably not looking to go ski in Indiana. What have you been seeing trend-wise so far? How's the Perfect Pass selling overall? And are most of your locals still sticking with that Timberline Pass? Yeah, for us, most of the locals are still sticking with Timberline Pass because, yeah, it's a it's a bit of a drive to Perfect North Slopes, although I encourage all of them to go do it because that ski area is incredible and they would all have fun. But yeah, it's been a little bit more adopted from the Cincinnati side, uh, from Perry North Slopes, come in this direction, because really, it's a pretty easy drive. And if, if I was a perfect season pass holder, this would be a huge upgrade for me, because I'd make a couple trips out here in a year, no problem. Yeah, and, and I think the difference between the pass is less than 50 bucks. It's, it's a pretty yeah. small upsell. Yeah. So when I hosted Jonathan Davis, the Perfect North general manager on this podcast last year, and we've talked about Jonathan a lot today, but he mentioned that you were considering the Indy Pass for both Perfect North and Timberline. Have you thought any more about putting the mountains on this product? You know, we revisit it every year. John is really our pass guru, and we always trust his guidance on it. And it just hasn't made sense for us yet as we're growing the the ski industry. And we could talk for hours about this, but the... The ski industry is in a really interesting place as all the the collective passes are happening and everybody's concentrated on season pass pricing, 
we really are really concentrating on our day ticket pricing and making sure that we're adding value that way. We also concentrate on our season pass holders, but it all comes from that day ticket price. So talk about those day tickets, Tom, because you have a really interesting price structure at Timberline. I've never seen anything quite like it. Maybe you use the same system at Perfect North, but talk about how you structure your day tickets and why you ended up with that system. Yeah, we've used Timberline as a little bit of a laboratory. And so we did some really interesting stuff and are on the bleeding edge with technology here. Uh, And it's been a little bit brute force, but now we have it smooth. And so I think Perfect North Slopes is going to be adopting this. But so what we do is we're starting to play around with the terminology of your day, your way. People, everybody experiences the hill in a different way. And the parts that bring them value are different depending on their experience level and if they came with a group. And so we really wanted to just try and simplify it. Our lift ticket price is $95, but if you come during the week, you get $10 back in bonus credit that goes right back onto your ticket to be used anywhere at the ski resort. That also happens if you only use our beginner lift. If you stay in the beginner area all day and you don't use any of our other lifts, that bonus credit goes back on. If you come after one o'clock, that bonus credit comes on. If you ski less than four hours, that bonus credit goes on. So there's multiple different ways to come to the ski resort, buy a lift ticket, and then have ways to earn bonus credit back on depending on how you use that lift ticket. And we found that really, really successful. It builds into our customer. It gives them a reason to stay at the resort. Also gives them a reason to come back. And really where it all came from was was simplifying the product so that when a customer calls up, you don't have to go through a whole big rigmarole about what day are you coming? How many people are coming? It's just really simple. A lift ticket costs this much. And depending on how you use it, money will go back on. Do the credits stack? Is it just $10? Or if you ski four hours or less and show up after one, is that $20? And if it's midweek and you ski after, show up after one and ski less four hours, is it $30? Oh yeah, they stack up. And people end up with enough money on there for their next visit, or they'll use it to bring a friend or take their family out or buy new gloves. But it, yeah, it stacks up and we found it really useful because a lot of people are coming here for two or three days and they might be on the fence about skiing two days or three days or on the fence about coming back later in the season. And this really just builds into them, gives them a reason to come to us and to trust. And it just builds a lot of value into our customer. I mean, at $95 a day, though, it, it almost, I mean, it really makes sense to buy a season pass. That season pass is only $421. Yeah, that's true. But once again, it comes around to, are they skiing two days? Is this part of a bigger trip where they're skiing between Canaan and us and they're in, in the Valley? Are they coming back later in the season? Our season passes are really good value. And yeah, if you're going to spend more than four or five days here, you should buy a season pass. So so let's wrap up today here, Tom, with a talk about your neighbor, Canaan Valley, the ski area. It's a state-owned ski area. What is your relationship like with the Canaan Valley ski area? Yeah, our relationship's been really good. They're just a few miles away and their ski area complements ours pretty well. They have some really good beginner terrain. Their lifts are older fixed grip lifts and it's just a little more laid back over there. It's in a state park, so it just has this a little more mellow feel. But we've had really great relationships with them. The management over there has been, once again, a really great community partner. 
if we have an issue, we have a snow gun that breaks or we need a snowcat part, they're one of the first people that we call and they've always been really helpful and vice versa. They have something they need, they can give us a call and we're over there in a second. So it's been really good. So in the past, Timberline and Canane have offered combo products, a lift ticket that you could use one day at Canane and one day at Timberline for a weekend, for example, and a coupon book with discounts. Have you had any discussions with them about potentially bringing back some of these combo products to help folks experience both if they want to take a trip to the valley? Yeah, and that, that one falls right back into that kind of that indie past thought. We think about these things and we discuss them on a high level pretty often, but it just hasn't made sense yet. There's a lot of complexity that goes into sharing transactions. And if your technology doesn't meet up just right, it becomes really difficult. And so we really concentrate on having a lift ticket price that is reasonable and brings a lot of value to the customer and their lift ticket prices are pretty reasonable. And so the shared pass just hasn't quite made sense yet. All right, Tom, with that, I will give you your day back. I really cannot underscore this enough for anyone listening. The renaissance at Timberline has just been astonishing. I mean, the, the, the only thing I could think the entire time I was there, Tom, was I hope that the perfect family buys more ski areas because the way that they fixed that one up and the speed with which you all did it is just amazing. So I wish you continued luck as you continue to evolve this thing. Awesome work so far. So glad to hear you had a great season. I hope you have a great summer and hope to see you on the slopes again next year. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. That's Tom Price, general manager of Timberline, West Virginia. I'm sorry, but I just cannot get over the job that they have done in bringing that place back. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you all for listening. The podcast calendar is stacked from now through early 2024 with big names in every region. In the West, you're going to get conversations with the leaders of Keystone, North Star, Big Sky, Schweitzer, and Mount Bachelor. New England, I've got Mount Snow, Killington, Atitash, and Sunday River coming your way. Midwest, we are going to get updates on Lutzen, Snow River, and my first ever Ontario podcast with the owner of the great Mount St. Louis Moonstone. Frankly, that is just a fraction of the podcast I have scheduled. I am booking more all the time. To get those episodes the moment they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers to receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter, threads, and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.